the Bible, it's 66 different books that all come together to tell one story. But what is it really? Where does it come from? When we open up these pages, how do we know that this is actually trustworthy? Every single one of us, whether we claim Christianity for ourselves, if we're skeptical, if we find ourselves to be a mixture of both, all, I would say, can have reliability, can have trust in what these words say. And over the next couple of weeks, we want to walk through that to help give you confidence to share a few reasons of how and why we find this to be trustworthy, to be reliable. You know, this is, is relevant for all of us in the room because every single one of us, regardless of our faith background, are people of faith. That is, we all have trust, we all have belief in something. We have faith. For some, it's faith, belief, trust in these words. Some are exploring all of the different religions to see which one suits them best. Some disregard it all. But regardless of it, even if we find ourselves in that final category, every single one of us is a person of faith. And I would say, again, this is really what we could base our trust on. I believe that every single one of us should trust, can trust, and have confidence. And not just what this says, that following the words, the claims of this book isn't a blind faith, but it's reasonable. Uh, really, the, the reason that the Bible is so important for us is kind of like a puzzle. If you've ever decided to do a puzzle, you have these little bitty pieces. This is part of a 3,000 piece set. But you have a little piece. And when you look at this singular piece, there is no way that you can solve the puzzle with just this. That in isolation, this singular piece does not make sense. And as you're trying to figure out a puzzle, what is your number one resource? It's the box. Because what the box shows you is what the picture eventually is supposed to look like. It's a guide for us for every single piece. And in our lives, every single circumstance situation, difficulty, trial, is a piece of this puzzle, of the story that God is writing of each of our lives. And so the reason that the Bible is so important is because the Bible is our box. While every single circumstance, every single situation that we find ourselves in may not make sense individually. We know when we look at the box, when we look at our source, it begins to make sense. You know, our goal here today is not to just leave with all this knowledge, all this background information. We're going to cover a lot. We're going to cover a whole lot. Really, I had a, had a professor once say this to me. He said, to know and not to do is not to know at all. To know and not to do is not to not know at all. And so we don't want to leave with all of this information, just puffing ourselves up, going to say all of these different Bible stats. We're going to cover a ton of information. And so I want to encourage you, every single week we have message notes. I want to encourage you to look at that. There's a lot of information there. Every single slide that we hit will be on there. You can text Best You to 97,000. Follow along. Uh, I want to encourage you to take notes. Because we're going to show how the, the history, the archaeology, prophecy, a lot from this book is actually reasonable. 
there's a lot to cover. And the nature of this topic is that we cannot cover it exhaustively. There's so many different nuances, pieces, components of this. And so if you have a specific question relating to the reliability, the confidence you can have in this book, what I want to encourage you to do is to email me. Send me an email, birdieinn at cof.church, and I want to process through that with you. Maybe for you, you want to know how do you reconcile science, the study of nature, and theology, the study of God. How do those work together? Can they work together? Maybe you have some questions about maybe the uh, origination of the canon. This is the compilation of biblical books. Like, who got to pick which books go in here? Maybe you have some questions about the different text types, where it came from, and even textual criticism kinds of things. Whatever it may be, or if I cover something and you want to know a little bit more detail, I really want to encourage you to send me an email. I want to follow up with each one of those and help you process through whatever it is that's really important to you. We're going to cover this in a survey fashion. And as we begin, what I want us to do is to understand the nature of the Bible, is to understand what it says about itself. And that is that the Bible is the infallible word of God. The Bible is the infallible word of God. And in it, God communicates to us how to walk in relationship with him. He gives us principles for daily living. Maybe you've heard the word inerrant before. It's very similar. All infallible means is that the Bible is incapable of error. Inerrant, similar word, means it contains no errors. They're very similar, but the Bible is inerrant. That is, if there's a God and it's his words that he spoke, and God is perfect, then a perfect God cannot produce an errored work. So the Bible is the infallible word of God. God, that God used man in their own time, their own language, their own styles in order to communicate what is on these pages to us. This idea of holding the Bible in such high regard, it stems from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says this right here. It says, every scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word all scripture is God breathe. In Greek, the original language of this writing is theopneustos. It literally is the word for God and the word for spirit. And so when we say God breathe, we're saying it is God spirited, infused with the spirit of God for us. And we see all over of these 66 different books confirming that one another is to be considered scripture. Peter, who is one of the disciples of Jesus, confirms even that the writings of Paul, the guy that wrote this one right here, that what he says is to be considered scripture, is to be considered the uh, God-breathed word. We see, again, that the premise of the Bible being inspired, the inspired word of God, working with that background, what we want to spend a little bit of time today is working through these few different parts, that the Bible's uniqueness, its preparation, And the testimony of history, archaeology, and prophecy all work together to to confirm beyond a reasonable doubt that it is reliable. The Bible's uniqueness, its preparation, history, archaeology, and prophecy. That all of this works together, even though all odds are against that the Bible is unlike any other book that has ever been written, that has ever been assembled together. We see there's a lot of unique things about the Bible. One, like I mentioned, it's 66 different books. Very different. Different genres, different styles. It was 
compiled over 1,600 years. So from the time of the very first books to the most recent ones, there's a 1,600-year period. Out of all of these books, the Bible was written by more than 40 different authors. And I'm talking very different authors. From kings to peasants, philosophers to fishermen, psychiatrists or uh, physicians. It was written by a lot of different people, 40 different authors in different places. There are portions of the Bible that are written from the comfort of a room, a nice, comfortable living space. Portions of it are written in the wilderness, in the desert. There are portions of what we find in here that is written in a dungeon. It was also written at different times, from times of war to times of peace. It was written on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, originally in three different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. It was written on perishable materials, papyrus, parchment, things that go away quickly. It was also, at this point, it's been translated in over 700 different languages. There is no a dispute that there is a uniqueness to the Bible, to what we have today. And as you think of the Bible as a whole, uh, we have seen it in two major portions. We have the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the original Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament is all centered on, you can summarize it by saying the Old Testament is focusing on this Messiah, Hebrew for anointed one, in Greek it's Christ, but the Old Testament all focused on this Messiah that is to come because there are the people of God and there's this problem of sin that separates the people of God from him. And so this Messiah is going to come and he's going to redeem, he's going to save the people. And the New Testament is all about this person named Jesus who is that promised Messiah that came to bring us into right relationship with God again. And so while the Old Testament is all focused in on this Messiah is coming, the New Testament focuses in on that the Messiah has come. And what's incredible is both the Old Testament and the New Testament both speak that the story is not over. That there's going to be a time when Jesus comes again. And that's where we take part, that this is alive and active and we have a part in the story. And across all of these different books, over all of this period of time, there is as though one mind has spoken it all. From one mind. With one central theme. That theme is that it is God's glory shining through the redemption of man. God's glory shining through the redemption of man. And this is incredibly important. Because while we have a spot within the Bible, it is not about us. It is about God and his glory shining through his redemption, him drawing us back to himself. Again, there are some things that are yet to happen, some things that have not been seen, that have not come into fruition just yet. And while we consider that, what's important to know is that this, obviously, if it's over 1,600 years, there's a lot of this that is very old. It's been a while. So how can we trust where it came from? Well, I want you to know that there has been meticulous work to keep what we have here consistent. In fact, there was a part of Israel, the tribe of the Levites, that had a dedication to copying and recopying the Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible, for hundreds of years. 
They would preserve it. They would take care of it. We see as we consider how did the Bible get to us today in English, we have all of these different versions. There's all of this different stuff. Well, as I mentioned, it started first in Hebrew and Aramaic. All of the Old Testament, for the most part, is written in Hebrew, with the exception of parts of Ezra, Jeremiah, and Daniel in Aramaic. The New Testament in Greek. Around 300 B.C., they ended up translating the old, the original Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek. That's what we call the Septuagint. And from that, about 600 years later, we got the Latin translation, which is what we had for a very long time, about 1,100 years, that was the Bible that was available. And it wasn't until the 1300s that we started to get the Bible in English, the language of the common person. They went straight from the Latin into English. And as a couple hundred years later from that, there became a renewed interest in not just having a translation from the Latin, but straight to the original languages. And it's around that time that we get our King James Version. 1607, King James authorizes these people to establish a new English literal word-for-word translation of the Bible. And over all this period of time, in all these different languages, that can cause people to question whether there's reliability in the words on this page, on these pages. But what we have today, the Bible that we have today, is 99.5% exactly the same as the original manuscripts. We have very old copies that it's 99.5% exactly the same as the originals with the discrepancy being little misspellings or marginal additions. Think for a second if you've read the King James Version before. At the very end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 9, it says, For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. That's not in our modern translations because that wasn't in the oldest manuscripts that we've found. And so that is the 0.5% difference. I know for us in our English today, while all that information, that history might be helpful, uh, how does it help me practically right now? One of the most common questions we get is, what Bible translation do I use? Like, cool, it came from all these languages, it was in Latin, but I speak English. So which one do I use? And my answer to that is Yes. You see, there's a nuance, some differences in the translations that we even have in English. And when you think of the three primary ideologies of translations, there's different ways that people go about translating what we have into English. Again, we want to continue to have confidence in where this came from, but also confidence in the version that we're reading. And the first of these different options is what is called a word-for-word translation. That is, in the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, They took this word, and this is what it means in English. This word, and this is what it means in English. Literal word for word. Examples of that would be the the NASB, the KJV, the King James, the ESV. That it is literal. This is exactly what they said every single word. Another way that translators go about it is they do what is called a thought-for-thought translation. Instead of the literal word, they take a phrase or a thought, an idea... And they say, this is what the author originally intended, looking at the original language. This is the phrase, this is the thought that the author had in mind. Examples of that would be the NIV, the NLT. There's others as well. Again, if you have a question about a specific one, email me and I can help you answer what kind it is. But there's thought for thought. In the last version, 
style is what I would call a concept for concept. A lot of people call this a paraphrase. I think that discounts it a little bit. But a concept for concept, the idea with this kind of version is that they're instead of taking a thought, a specific phrase, they're taking like a paragraph. This is the heart of the message that the author had in mind. This concept. An example of that would be the message translation. And so as we've looked at the uniqueness of the Bible, the preparation, how it has gotten to us, knowing that what we have in our English translation is 99.5% accurate. We also see the testament of the world surrounding the Bible through things like archaeology. And all archaeology is, is it's the study of human history or prehistory by excavating sites, looking at ancient artifacts, physical remains, we see the testimony of what happened, what is explained within the Bible, proven through these archaeological findings. In fact, the uh, archaeology not only verifies certain biblical references, but it also provides a background for the message of the Bible. It not only verifies certain biblical references, but it provides a background for what we have. The things that we read about in the Bible have been found, have been seen to actually be real. Be real places at a real time with a real group of people. And the things that are expressed in here are found year after year after year. In fact, there have been more than 25,000 sites already discovered that show connection to the Old Testament period. Proven within the history of mankind. You know, one of my favorites that have been found is something that's known as the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder, it was found in 1879 in Babylon. That's modern-day Iraq. And the Cyrus Cylinder, it looks like this. And what we know is that a long time ago, around 539 B.C., this group of Persians, the Medes and the Persians, they come to Babylon. You read about it in the book of Daniel. They come to Babylon. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 5, it says the writing's on the wall. They're about to be overthrown. That's the Medes and the Persians coming to take over Babylon. They uh, destroy them. And then what happens next is incredible. A lot of people have thought for a very long period of time that there's no way that this story happened exactly the way that we have it. Because what we see with the Persians is unique. They are expressed as someone unlike any other. In fact, the only non-Jewish person called Messiah in the Old Testament is a Persian king, Cyrus. The one that came and rescued them from Babylon. And the Persians were different than everyone that came before them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, everyone before them would take out a group altogether to completely wipe them out. Their language, their culture. Then make them subscribe to this new way of life. But the Persians were different. And we read about that in the book of Daniel. And what's incredible is this cylinder right here that was found, as they looked at the inscribed pieces of it, they saw that it expresses the specific decree of Cyrus for the people to go back and to worship their gods again. Very unique. And people had skepticism that there's no way that things actually happen this way. The Cyrus cylinder proves that to be true, that Cyrus actually gave a decree saying that you can go back Set up your temple, set up your city, and worship your God. And as time goes on, we see that archaeology continues time and time again to prove even different parts of the prophecies or the predictions that are found within the Bible. These different 
predictions are revealed through the archaeological findings and things that we read about even in the New Testament. And what's important about prophecy as we read about it in the Bible, that's something that might not be very commonly understood for us. But we see in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, talking about the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. And through the pages on here, we see that there are over 1,800 prophecies, predictions that are made, 300 of which are specific to the Messiah. They're called messianic prophecies, specific to Jesus. 300 prophecies that Jesus actually fulfilled exactly, some that are still yet to be. And I say that to say that the the Cyrus Cylinder that I just mentioned, we see something absolutely incredible in the book of of Daniel in chapter 9, What it says is that from the time of this decree that is made for the Israelites to go back to rebuild their temple, when they finally get to rebuild their temple, put the wall around their city, if you've read the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, you see that the Israelites get to go back, they get to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But in Daniel chapter 9, it says there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. We're going to do some math. But seven sevens and 62 sevens, 69 sevens, that's 483 years. And it's known from archaeological excavations that Nehemiah got the decree from a Persian king in 450 B.C. And it was seven sevens and and 62 sevens from the time of the decree until the Messiah would fulfill what God had promised all along. 483 years prophesied about way back. And at 450 B.C., what happens 483 years later? That's when Jesus goes to the cross and dies for our sins, the wrong things that we've done. The Messiah had come. And that's incredible. It proves that what was written about in here actually happened. Now, people have said, well, there's no way that had to have been doctored, that had to have been added later. Maybe they saw that there was this decree, and then they saw that Jesus was going to come. They came back and like, okay, it's going to be this many sevens. And that would be a fair argument for a while, but one of the greatest discoveries that has ever been made in our lifetime happened in 1947, and it was in a place that looked like this. There were these Bedouin shepherds. They were looking for a lost of their flock. And as they're looking in this place, it's this area called Wadi Qumran, just around the Dead Sea, on the west bank of the Jordan. And as they're looking for this lost of their flock, they come across a series of 12 caves. And in these 12 caves, they find what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And what we see of the Dead Sea Scrolls are there are 40,000 inscribed fragments, ancient scrolls, ancient documents. In fact, every single book of the Bible except Esther was found at least in part in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason that these are so important is because we see the portions of Daniel that talk about this prophecy. And these scrolls date from 150 BC all the way to 70 AD. Over this long period of time, about 100 years before Jesus ever even shows up on the scene, we find copies of the books of the book of Daniel talking about this prophecy. It couldn't have been doctored. It couldn't have been added later. And I say all that to say, that's a lot of information, but I say that to say that what we have, we can have confidence in where it came from. I think sometimes we just follow this thing like, well, you know, I raised up on it. I guess I'll just follow it. 
this isn't blind. To follow after this is a reasonable faith. There's history to back it up, archaeology to back it up. People are looking again and more and more. And as I study this more, as I understand more about our world, about nature, about archaeology, about this book right here, I am more and more confident of what is on these pages. It's true. It's reasonable. It's not just blind. You're not just looking at these old words, these old documents that aren't relevant for us. It's incredible that God has kept this, preserved this for you, for me. We see, I was talking about the prophecies of the Messiah, the ones about Jesus, that Jesus came and he fulfilled 300, at least 300 prophecies, exact representations of what the Messiah was to look like. An example of some of these is that the Messiah was supposed to be from the lineage of Shem, from a descendant of Abraham, through the line of Isaac, through the line of Jacob, zoning in on who this was supposed to be, from the tribe of Judah, in the family of Jesse, the house of David, born of a virgin. I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone that would fit that category, but it's zoning in specifically on who this Messiah was supposed to be, had to fulfill every single one of these predictions, these prophecies of what he was supposed to be like. It continues, not only that, but he was to be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now, the town of Bethlehem was not big. It's not a metropolis. In fact, in this room, you could fit the town of Bethlehem twice with that many people. It was 1,000 to 1,500 people in that town that the Messiah, this figure that God was going to send that had been promised long ago all through the Old Testament, was to come from this small town of Bethlehem. He would have one going before him, John the Baptist. He'd be rejected. He'd be betrayed by a friend. He'd be mocked, spit on. They cast lots for his clothes. His bones would be broken, his hands and feet pierced. Specifics of what this Messiah was supposed to do. And take this one, for example, right here. His hands and feet pierced. That may seem a little general. I've not had my hands and feet pierced. But this was prophesied in Psalm 22 as David is crying out saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You hear the same words of Jesus as he's on the cross. But in that Psalm, David says, my hands, his feet will be pierced. And this is 800 years before crucifixion is ever even invented. It's not that they knew about this way of death. Fulfilling every single one of these all throughout these pages. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. And if you think about the likelihood of that, it is incredible odds against it, yet we see it. Again, proven in archaeology, the findings in prophecy, the history, the way the Bible got to us. And in fact, for Jesus to just fulfill eight, eight of those prophecies, for him to fulfill eight, it would be one in 100 quadrillion. Or just eight. But he fulfilled at least 300. And there are more to go. The likelihood of Jesus fulfilling 300 prophecies is one octadexillion. I didn't have to look that up. 
But that's one times 10 to the 57th power for Jesus to fulfill 300. And as we read about this, the words, the reliability of what is found in this book, we know that that happened, that that occurred. It's reasonable. It's reliable. Now, the the odds stacked against this book, I don't know if you've always grown up on it, believing it, knowing it to be true. I grew up in a skeptical upbringing, unsure of what was on here. And there have been many brilliant minds that have attempted to disprove what is in here. But as they took some time to open up these words, open up these pages, they found something that they did not expect. There's this archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey. He set out to disprove specifically the historian Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts in our New Testament. And as he searched to disprove that Luke, to say that he was a terrible historian, he set out on this goal to disprove, to show that this cannot be trusted. And as he got to the end of his study, what he came to the conclusion was that Luke is the best historian that he has ever researched. He gave his life over to Jesus because he took time to dive into the words on these pages. To see. There's this man, Simon Greenleaf. He's one of the principal founders of the Harvard Law School. He also set out to disprove the words, the claims, in this specifically around the resurrection of Jesus. He wanted to prove that it was falsified, that there's no way that this could have happened. He was going to look at other ancient manuscripts, the Bible, anything he could get his hands on to prove that this was falsified, that it wasn't true, it didn't happen. Now, Simon Greenleaf gets to the end of his study. What he realizes is that every claim about Jesus in the resurrection is true. He can find no reason to say it's falsified. C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard of him. Lee Strobel, maybe you've seen a movie. Brilliant people have set out to disprove what is in here. What I want us to understand, again, is that the Bible's uniqueness, its preparation, the testimony of history, archaeology, and prophecy all work together to confirm beyond a reasonable doubt that this, that the words on this page, all of these pages, are reliable. Now, just because we know all these historical aspects, the details, does that mean that we believe it's the word of God? It doesn't. Because that's where faith comes in. There has to be the faith component of reading, of understanding this to be God's words. That's not enough just to know a whole lot about what is on these pages. To explore it, to see it, to take time to understand what it is, not just the facts about its history. I couldn't give you enough, if you're skeptical enough, I could not give you enough facts or stats to back up the reliability of this because there has to be a faith component. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. And so we still have to have faith that these are the very words of God. We have to decide for ourselves, is this true? Is it untrue? Is this divine? Is it fake? Is this powerful or is it insignificant? And like I said earlier, To know and not to do is not to know at all. Again, I don't want to leave and say, oh, well, that was a lot of information. That was a lot of stats. I want this to change you. You need to understand that we don't follow a blind faith. 
And we want to talk about this because we get that question all the time. How, do we even, how can I even trust in this thing? And as we've seen those disprovers end up turning their life over to Jesus, it all happened because they took time to open up these pages, read about the God, and give it just a little bit of a chance. But again, it's not enough to just know information about what is found in here. But we have to do it. I think of uh, kind of like some ice cream. Do you guys like ice cream? Got uh, some Bluebell? Anyone like Bluebell? Yeah? It's uh, cookies and cream cone. You guys had that one? Pretty good. It, uh, I don't know if you've ever taken some time to read the ingredients on the ice cream. Um, I do this in my, uh, my pastime, but there's milk, there's cream, skim milk, uh, there's some thiamine mononitrate, that tastes good, uh, bicarbonate, soy lethicin, ooh, the soy lethicin, that's a, uh, probably gives all the flavor, natural vanilla, cream-filled cookie pieces, palm oil, soybean oil, inverted sugar, contains 2% or less of the following, corn flour, soy lethicin, so maybe that's not all the flavor, But, you know, I can look at this ice cream. I can learn everything about what's in it. Everything. I can memorize it. I can memorize all of the different ingredients. I can can memorize it in multiple languages. But there's nothing quite like opening it up Mm. it is the soy lethicin. better stop. There's nothing quite like opening it and tasting it for yourself. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you made Jesus the boss of your life. When we read these pages, we are called to a childlike faith. But a childlike faith is not a childish faith. That we need to take time to understand this that it matters to study it, to care about it, to look into it. And if you're skeptical, what I want to encourage you to do is don't just read all the ingredients. Take time to taste, to see that this is legit, that this is real, and that the God that is on these pages wants a relationship with you, wants to know you intimately because, again, the story is not over. It's only just begun. So you're going to taste and see that this is good. Well, let's pray together. God, you have loved us so much that you've given us such an incredible work from your mind. All of these different authors you've used, all of these different books. God, I pray that we leave here with confidence in what this is. That there's a background, a research, it's reasonable. Pray that you help us to see that, to learn more about it, to dive into it, to understand its contents, to share that with other people, to taste, to see that it is good. God, I pray for anyone that's skeptical. God, they give it a chance. They help and just see what you could do in their lives as they open up these pages and they read about who you are as you reveal yourself through these words. God, we're thankful for the Bible. We're thankful that you love us so much that you would give us your word to guide us on our lives the box, the guide to piece everything together. It's in Jesus' name I pray.